0: and and looking at your Bible and doing all that good stuff. We're going to do some teaching in the Word of God. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to start at verse 1. I have no idea where we're going to end. We're going to, I'm going to begin to teach a little differently on on Sundays because uh, one of the greatest struggles for me has been to try to tackle these massive sections and, and hold God's thought or his principal truth or purpose for each text. It's been difficult for me to do that, articulate that and do it in a timely manner as so many of you have seen. You've seen me preach for 55 minutes. You've seen me preach for an hour and a half. The hour and a half is the one where they start yelling, give us Barabbas. So, um, right. So I want to be sensitive to you. And honestly, uh, whenever I preach that long, I always feel like condemned afterwards, and it's not because of what you're doing, but I just feel like I've dishonored the Lord with the time and all that. And, and most of us, I would say that probably none of us are familiar with how preaching was done back in the old days where it was about three or four hours long. So you think to yourself, good night, I can never go to that church. Well, that's how most churches did it. But um, I feel that sometimes I go too long because I'm trying to bite off more than I can chew. So um, for now on, I'm going to, well, I'm going to try it today and see how it goes. But what we'll do is we'll just keep working through the text and we'll stop at like the 50 minute mark and we'll get into communion and then the next week we'll pick up wherever we leave off. And so that's just kind of how we'll do it. We'll have kind of an ongoing um, thing and it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're teaching through a book line by line, you can kind of do it that way. If you're doing it topically, you can't do that. So we're kind of switching things up a little bit. So when you, um, if you look in your bulletin, it says, Uh, chapter 13, verse 1 to 1533. If I didn't just tell you what we were about to do, you would be thinking, good night, right? How long would it take Pastor Phil to teach that many verses? Probably a year. So I don't want to preach to skeletons, so we're switching it up a little bit. But I do want to um, sort of just reflect a little bit on where we were last week so we'll know where we're going today or what we're beginning with today. And uh, we do have some some guests with us today, and we're glad you're here. We are glad you're here, and and you'll pretty much have no idea what we've been doing. Just just so you know, we have been working our way through the book of Acts kind of slowly and expositionally, and um, as a new church, it makes sense to study the old church and and to sort of see how church is done and how the Holy Spirit moves in the church, and so that's why we started doing this series about a year and a half ago. But anyways, let's get into kind of this text and, and reflect a little bit on where we were Um, we left off last week at the end of 12 where Barnabas and Saul, uh, you know, they had gone down to Jerusalem to bring supplies from the church at Antioch, which was the first Gentile church to be planted in the entire world. They had gone from that church up in Antioch, total Gentile church. They'd gone down to Jerusalem to bring supplies, and then they had returned. So that's kind of where we pick up. After returning to Antioch from Jerusalem, Saul and Barnabas... And what we're, this is what we're going to see in our text today and as we move in, through it in the coming weeks. Saul and Barnabas were chosen to go out as missionaries um, and then they were sent to Cyprus, Galatia and I think it's pronounced Pamphylia. It looks like Pamphylia, but I think it's in Greek. It's pronounced The Missionary journey that we are about to explore is often referred to as the first of three of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, How many of you are familiar with the missionary journeys of Paul? You've maybe read them in Scripture, you've heard them taught on before, and there's kind of three of them, and and they covered all this whole area, you know, and, and this whole area of Palestine and beyond and up into Rome and all of that. Well, there's three primary journeys that were carried out by Saul or Paul. And I'll be referring to him as Saul and Paul probably through this whole sermon, because that's kind of how it is in the text, until his name is finally kind of changed to Paul. Saul and Paul are the same guy. Now, it isn't completely accurate, though, to think of, it, this is what usually happens in our minds, we tend to think of Paul, because of these three missionary journeys that he did, we, we tend to think of him as, as only doing those three missionary journeys. We tend to think of Paul as this guy who was a persecutor of the church, and He got saved, and and then later on he was chosen to go out and do three missionary journeys, if you will. But that's not entirely accurate. Um, Through the book of Acts that we have actually been studying, we've discovered that after... Just within a couple of days of Saul being saved, you remember how he talked about how he was on his way to Damascus to, to basically persecute and imprison Christians, and then he was blinded by this light. Blinded by the light, right? Remember that dumb song? He was blinded by the light. Jesus regenerated him, illuminated him, saved him, and then he was like blind for three days, and he went off into Damascus, and then Ananias basically gave him his missions call. But what we discover is just a few days after Saul was converted, was saved and converted. He became a missionary. He literally became a missionary. He began to proclaim the gospel everywhere that he went, everywhere that he was. And so Paul isn't, or Saul isn't a missionary based on the fact that he went on three missions journeys, one with Barnabas and later with Titus and Silas and all these guys or whatever, It's based upon the fact that he was always missional. He was always missional. From the moment he was saved, he was always about missions. He was always about proclaiming the gospel. There exists, and this is really interesting, there exists five periods of Saul's missions work between Acts 9 and Acts 11. Five periods. Remember back in Acts 9 at the beginning, somewhere in there he got saved. From that point to basically to the end of 11. There are five periods of him doing missions work. Okay? We read, period one, we read that Saul was a missionary in Damascus. As soon as he got saved, he went out and started proclaiming the gospel in the Jewish or Hellenistic synagogues right there in Damascus where he was. That was one period. One period of his missions work was in Damascus. The second period uh, took place in Arabia and Nabatea. After preaching the gospel and being a missionary in Damascus. He went into Arabia and Nabatea, and he started proclaiming the gospel there. Period 3, Saul was a missionary in Jerusalem. Remember when he went to Jerusalem, the apostles wouldn't receive him because he thought he was still a persecutor? Barnabas persuaded them. Do you remember that? Guess what? Once he was received by the apostles, he started proclaiming the gospel in the Hellenistic synagogues, in the same synagogues that he used to attend in the same synagogues where he was probably one of the guys that was arguing against Stephen who was going into these synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. He went right into Jerusalem and started preaching the gospel. He was a missionary there. Period four, Saul was a missionary in Syria. Paul was a missionary, again, part of four. Syria, uh, Cilicia, and Tarsus. We tend to think that Paul was doing nothing when he went to Tarsus after coming out and getting saved and preaching the gospel and all that. He went off to Tarsus, all the... Jews and everyone wanted to kill him, and the church rushed him off to Tarsus to his homeland. Well, guess what he was doing in Tarsus? He was a missionary there. He wasn't just making tents. He was proclaiming the gospel in Syria, Cilicia, and Tarsus. And then period 5, again, between chapter 9 and chapter 11, period 5, Saul was a missionary again in Syria and then in Antioch. And that's what we've been studying, how he was a missionary in Antioch. What did he do while he was in Antioch with Barnabas? He preached the gospel in the church of Antioch. He was a missionary there. He served kind of as a pastor, as an interim pastor. So he's always been a missionary. He he didn't just become a missionary when the church said, hey, look, he's a missionary. Let's send him out what we're about to read about now. And he went on three journeys. He was always a missionary. And such is the calling of every Christian. Every Christian is a missionary all the time, no matter where they're at. They're always to be missional. They're always to be proclaiming the gospel. They're always to be proclaiming the excellencies of God. We're full-time missionaries, every one of us. Well, missionaries are just those who go over to, you know, over to Africa and do that kind of No, 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 no. Yeah, those are missionaries, no doubt. That's a specific type of ministry and mission. But we are always to be, Christians are always to be missional, missionaries. Now, the first five periods... Missions periods of Saul are then followed by 10 additional periods. 10 additional periods. Saul engaged in a whopping 15 periods of missional work in how many different cities? 27. 27, the duration of his faith and life and ministry, 27 cities. This man went into to proclaim the gospel as a missionary of Jesus Christ. So many of them were not included in those three missions journeys Many of them took place before then. 27 cities. I'm not sure if I've even been to 27 cities in my life. Most people haven't, believe it or not. Most people don't leave their block. His missions work is staggering. The way that he served the Lord. Fearlessly, boldly, sacrificially. He he truly is a remarkable person. He even remained... Missional while in jail. Who does that? I hide. If I was in jail, I'd <laughs> be like a little frightened chihuahua. This man would be chained to guards. We read in the book Philippians chained to a guard, and the guard would get saved. He would proclaim the gospel to the guards, he would proclaim the gospel to the other inmates. Never was he not missional, never was he not a missionary. While he was locked up, he preached. He preached everywhere he went. Why is that? Because Saul took Paul, he took very seriously the calling that Jesus put on his life, and his goal was to honor the Lord by being obedient to Jesus' command for him to spread the gospel. Now, when we ponder Saul, Paul's mission's work, we tend to think to ourselves, I could never do what he did, did, because I lack what it takes to pull that kind of work off. Or sometimes we ponder, Paul had a unique and special calling on his life, and that was him, and, and what he did was specific to him, and, and not necessarily for me or for other Christians. Well, I'd like to caution you. I've mentioned it earlier. Make no mistake. If you are in Christ, God has given you time, talent, talent, And treasure. For what purpose? For your own household and for your own benefit and for your own blessings? No. For the advancement, if you're in Christ, for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you have what you have. Advancing the gospel in your own family, under your own roof, with your children, to your neighbors and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. What you have, what you have been given... What you have been entrusted with is for the cause of Christ. We don't tend to think that way in America, do we? We are living the American dream. We are amassing things for ourselves, and and, and we're pursuing happiness, and, and we're doing these things. When the very fact is, if you were a child of God, if you were in Jesus Christ, God has given you these things to be a steward over them, to manage them for him. For what? For his glory. And what's his glory, Jesus Christ? What's the message of his glory? The gospel. For the advancement of the gospel. That's why you have what you have, friends. And it's amazing to me that preachers always say, you need to give like 10% of what you have. As if God doesn't own all that you have. And as if all of it does not belong to him. And is set aside and given to you and trusted to you for his purposes. It's all his. And it's all for his purpose. You simply can't be selfish with it. You've got to use it for him somehow. Be creative. Pray for ways to use what you have for him. Thanking him always. Well, this was the type of character that Paul was. And don't think to yourself that I could never be like him because look at what he did. I could never pull these things off or I'm not supposed to be because he was a particular person at a particular time and Especially, you know, we so often downplay, we read about these people in the, in the scriptures and, and we downplay ourselves and others. And We think that, wow, that, that person, I could never just do what he did. I, I won't even attempt it. When in fact, reality for you, if you're in Christ, is that you have been given time, talent, and treasure to use for God. Boy, you may not go to 27 cities and preach the gospel like Saul, but you th- shouldn't think to yourself, because he did that, I don't have to. You should be thinking, how can I worship Jesus and glorify Jesus and use what I have for his kingdom? That's the right attitude of the child of God. Make no mistake, what you've been given is for those purposes. And Matthew twenty-eight nineteen makes it absolutely clear that every believer is a missionary and is called to make disciples right where they are and beyond. So it's never right for any believer to downplay the great high calling God has on their life. Never think to yourself that I do not possess what it takes to be a missionary for Christ here or beyond. God has most certainly given you time, talent, and treasure. And I say, and it's one of our mottos here at this church, he's given you those things. Invest them wisely, not just in your own glorification, not in your own glorification at all. Not just for your own comfort, for your own happiness. Because guess what? You can invest all of that into your own happiness, and at the end of the day, you're not happy. Only Christ can make you truly joyful and happy. So invest what you have to Him. Now you can begin with this right here at RHC. Invest those things here. We are a missional church. We want to expand. We want to grow. Not just numerically, spiritually, but physically. We want to have more people come. In fact, we even want to plant more churches. We believe the best way, and it's biblical, to make disciples is to plant churches. These are things that we talked about when we first began to plant this church. And we had three core messages right up front a year and a half ago. We talked about being a church that will plant churches, that desires to plant churches. We want to expand. We want to plant more churches. Modesto needs more churches. You're thinking there's one on every corner. Yeah, there probably is. But there's probably, if we're accurate, I don't even think we're accurate on any of these polls. The stats show that we have about 50,000 registered Protestants in this area according to the census. But how accurate is that? Almost everyone calls themselves a Christian. That's 50,000 people. How many people live in Modesto? (coughs) 250,000 nearly. So if the stats are correct, then we have about 200,000 people who don't know the Lord. Or belong to some other faith system. We need to plant churches. We need to expand. We need to reach this community with the gospel. And the bottom line is this. If you do not take ownership here by investing your time, talent, and treasure, we cannot move forward. Paul made a great point earlier that, you know, and it's a sad fact and reality, but if you're going to do church in America and most other countries, it costs you a lot of money to do it. you got to pay for a building and with 108 degrees, you got to pay for air conditioning. You're not going to get anyone in there. You got to have chairs. You got to have all these things. You got to, Guys have to get salaries. The worker is worth his wage. If you don't invest your time, talent, and treasure, guess what? It makes it really, really hard for us to advance. It makes it really, really difficult, nearly impossible to plant churches. Why? Because it costs money to do so. Do you have to have a billion dollars to do it? No. Some churches think, man, you got to have $200,000. No, you don't. We planted this thing on a buck 19. You don't have to have a fortune to do it, but if you don't take ownership by investing, because that's how you take ownership. You don't take ownership by attendance. You're coming to a church. That's a great start, but you don't literally, it doesn't become your church until you begin to invest your time, talent, treasure. Then you take some ownership over it. And what you're doing is you're, you're investing in the lives of others, everyone else who comes. We can't do it without you. We can't do it without you. We can't move forward. So never think to yourself that Saul was Saul. He was special, and I am me, a regular Christian, so I don't have to live as Saul lived. You know what? You can live that out to the best of your ability here, to the glory of God right here by investing yourself, by investing your time, talent, and treasure here. You can be as Saul was. You know, you don't have to go to 27 cities and all that. You can begin right here. It's so critical that you do. Never think to yourself, I don't have to be consumed ...with the kingdom of God and pour myself into it like Saul did? Wrong. There is no escape clause for Christians in the Bible. Every one of us has the responsibility to pour ourselves into the work of the church. Every one of us, every Christian has that responsibility. And every Christian will have to give an account for how he or she invested in the kingdom. Have you ever read that in 2 Corinthians 5.10? You just heard it read a minute ago. That's a reality. At some point we have to stand before the Lord at the bema seat judgment and give an account for what we did or did not do with what he entrusted to us for the sake of himself, for his name's sake. I don't know about you, but you might think, "Well, you're a pastor, you probably get all this stuff right." Are you kidding me? I swindle the Lord at times. I'm flesh. Sometimes I try to swindle him. Sometimes I try to cheat him on my time, talent, and treasure. I'm prone to that. I'm a human being. But one thing that's very sobering is the fact that at some point when I breathe my last and there's this incredible judgment that happens, and believe, we're not getting thrown into the lake of fire, family, but we stand before Christ and we give an account. We are made to give an account of what we did with our time, talent, and treasure. Did we invest those things wisely? Or did we squander them? Or did we amass them and keep them for ourselves because they truly were our source of security rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ? At some point, you're going to have to speak to Jesus about that. That's a sobering thought for me. It's not fear that it generates. It just generates the sense of responsibility. Do you realize what's been done for you, Christian? That as much as you could give doesn't amount to any percentage in comparison to what the blood of Christ costs. Infinite value. It makes sense that we would give ourselves fully to the work of God, time, talent, and treasure when we reflect upon the great cost that Jesus Christ paid so that we could be redeemed, so that we could know God, so that we could love God, so that we could be in fellowship with God, so that we could spend our life with God, so that we could spend our eternity with him. Your sin cost a fortune to cover the blood of Jesus. Now I'm always reminded of Zacchaeus, you know, little Danny DeVito in the scripture. There's a man who, once forgiven, realized what the future blood, because this was prior to Jesus died, realized what that blood would do for him. And what did he do? How did he respond? He gave, he paid back everyone he. Messed over more so than he had to. The man just experienced a new heart. He was completely changed. He became, instead of a hoarder, he became the most generous person around. That should be our response. That should be our response. And we will have to give an account Two Corinthians 5.10. Now this morning we're going to begin to examine Saul Paul's. Don't know how any other way to put it missionary journey through Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. We will begin with Acts 13.1 and end at Acts 15.33 in the coming weeks. And as I said, I've decided to change it up and teach a little bit differently, and we really need to get right into the text and and get to work on it because time is ticking. Let's pray together and and look at 13.1. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for maybe convicting us right up front that we need to be more generous with what we have. Some of us are not giving, and we know it. And your very gospel compels us to do so. May we have a change of heart today, Lord. May we learn through your word as we just examine the scripture. Set our hearts ablaze for you. We may worship you in spirit and truth, give all that we have. There is great joy in giving ourselves over to you. Oh, it's hard at first, but the joy that you give in return sustains us. It's amazing. Speak to us now, and we just examine the scripture and apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, I like that name, it's kind of cool, Lucius, Lucius, whatever, of Cyrene, and man how would you like to have the man, the name Man? He's a man, right? man that's kind of cool, don't understand it, but that's his name. And he was what, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, I always hate trying to say that word because I never do it right, is that how you pronounce it? Tetrarch? man yeah, whatever and then it says saul now luke tells us that there were five guys who served as prophet teachers kind of prophet slash teachers at the church of antioch firstly we need to kind of look at what a prophet is what is a prophet here in the text what does it mean a prophet was like the apostles in that they were preachers of god's word and responsible in the early years of the church to instruct local congregations. Sometimes they received new revelation from God as in Acts eleven twenty-eight 28, and in Acts 21, 10 to 11. Both of those inc- incidents, however, record that the prophets, in contrast to the apostles, received practical revelation, not doctrinal revelation. Practical things, how to apply the faith practically, how to live it out practically. Now, some believe that the office of prophet ended with the apostolic era, or when that apostolic era ceased, or when, which would be the same time, when the signs and wonders gifts ceased. I tend to agree. I'm a cessationalist. I I think that those things ended then. We do see them displayed in the church at times, and I think more or less we see them displayed in the church falsely. It's just a circus act. If they do exist today, they're going to line up with Scripture. They're going to serve the same purposes. And we did a killer series on that not long ago. You ought to listen to it. But I believe this office of prophet ended back when the apostles ended. Both the prophets and the apostles were eventually, and this is just according to Scripture, replaced by elders or pastors or evangelists. It's true, however, that throughout the centuries, men have preached the gospel like the ancient prophets. Some men do it today. Prophets preach the word of God in a certain way. And and, and some men do preach. They don't get this revelation, any kind of new thing going on. It's all said in God's word. But some men today do kind of preach the way that the old prophets preached. Any man who stands before people or a congregation and declares the revelation of God, which is what? The word of God, your Bible boldly, authoritatively, and really simplistically, any guy who does it that way, mimics the ancient prophets. They were kind of like preachers, man. They just preached the word. It was simple. They're, 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 the way they put it forth was simple. It was bold. It was authoritative. Have you ever stood before a preacher? You know when you've been preached to. It kind of blows your hair back, right? That's kind of how they were. And, and there's some that preach like that today, and sometimes I, I kind of roll that way a little bit. I, I preach and and some people really, frankly, don't like preaching. Secondly, what is a teacher? A teacher is one who focuses more on the details of Scripture. Uh, a teacher is more concerned with the pedagogy, pedagogy, or what we would call the science of teaching, than with proclamation. They're more interested in busting out the finer details and expounding on the finer details than in the way they present Teachers tend to kind of sit on a bar stool, and, and then Jesus moved forward, and he went over here, and when he touched this man, and you know that's kind of the teacher style. The prophets kind of like this bold type. The teachers kind of opposite of that, more chilled out, more relaxed, more detailed. They like to teach the scriptures methodically, systematically, expositionally. Um, teachers presented the truth in a more detailed but less effusive um, way than prophets. When I think of a teacher today, I think of someone like Damian Kyle over at Calvary Chapel, right? You ever heard him teach the word? He kind of just expounds and kind of keeps working his way through the text and kind of uses the same tone and, you know, and the same jokes, (laughs) you know, preachers tend to do that, right? Or teachers do. But that's, when when I think of a teacher, I kind of think of him, kind of think of, uh, I don't know, maybe John Byron over at Big Valley. He's really kind of a teacher type. He likes to expound on that. And I I like to teach as well. I love the detail of Scripture. That stuff excites me, it gets me going. I I love learning and and sharing the details. I I love systematizing the the doctrines of Scripture. I know uh, years ago I, (laughs) I would read systematic theology, these big, giant, excruciatingly boring books on theology. At night for my bedtime reading, I'd lay in bed, you know, and, and open this thing up. It's a mystery that I don't have bigger arms like Popeye forearms from holding these things up in front of my face because I would hold them up and read, and my wife would look over and say, Good night. Well, you need to get a good night. You're in bed, right? She'd say, How can you read that at night? I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? You know, and I'd look over at her, and, and you know, and I'd say, how do, you, how do you read Pride and Prejudice <laughs> at night? I mean, for crying out loud, you're going to be dreaming of Mr. Darcy all night instead of me. That's not right. But she would say to me, how can you read that stuff? Because I'd hand it over to her. I'd read it out loud to her, and she'd just... She'd go right out as soon as I start reading it. But I love that stuff. I love it. I don't like Pride and Prejudice. I read that, and I just I feel like I need to wear a flower shirt, ride a tandem bike with my best friend matching sweaters. It's not good. I'm just not into it. Right? But... You know, I like that stuff. And and I like to teach that way. And I, I know Damian Kyle's that kind of teacher type and all that. Now Luke tells us that there were five of these prophets slash teachers in the Church of Antioch. He actually named them. Barnabas was one of them. This is the same Barnabas we've already studied. Barnabas, the son of encouragement from Cyprus. Barnabas who sold his field and gave the money to the church. Barnabas who became an influential leader in the church. Barnabas who persuaded the apostles to receive Saul as a brother. Barnabas who taught at the church of Antioch and who traveled with Saul. Same guy. Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger basically in Latin means black or dark complexioned. Makes sense. Niger It is believed that uh, Simeon may have been from the Roman provinces, one of them up in northern Africa. Somehow this man had gotten all the way up into Antioch and was kind of serving as a pastor, prophet, teacher guy up there. Cool guy, not much else about him in Scripture. Then we have Lucius or Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Lucius obviously came from Cyrene. It's in his name, and that was in North Africa. He may have belonged to a synagogue of the Cyrenians, in Jerusalem, Because they had these synagogues in Jerusalem that kind of were like extensions of the synagogues in these other countries. He may have belonged to the Cyrenian uh, synagogue in Jerusalem. But then probably, it, it seems like historians seem to think that he came to Antioch um, after fleeing from Jerusalem when Stephen was killed by Saul, who we're actually talking about, who got converted. He may have been one of those... Jews that fled, Jewish Christians that fled for his life, and then we have Manaean or Man—I don't know how to even pronounce it—Manaean. Manaean. Manaean had been brought up with Herod Antipas. That's extraordinarily interesting. Uh, Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, who ruled as the tetrarch over Galilee during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, some have linked him to Chusa, a person named Chusa. Uh, you choose a me, I choose a you. No, that's not really it. It's Chuza, and Chuza was a steward of Herod Antipas, perhaps a manager of one of his estates. Whose wife, and this is true, his wife uh, was named Joanna. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that there was a woman named Joanna who accompanied Jesus, Luke eight three. Um, so somehow he might have been tied to that woman. That might have been his, or he might have been tied to Chuza who was a steward and who had Joanna as a wife. We're not sure exactly. Uh, the text does say that Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, which means that he was probably educated in Rome alongside of Antipas. They were lifelong friends. They probably spent their entire childhood and everything else together. And that's just extraordinary to me. Some believe that Menaean held an influential position in the court of Antipas until he was converted to Christ. And then lastly, it says Saul... And Saul is the Saul that we've already been studying. We've seen him in the book of Acts, kind of from chapter, late chapter 8, 9, all the way up until now. Saul of Tarsus, Saul who was present at Stephen's death, Saul who persecuted the church, Saul who got saved on Damascus Road, Saul who became a great missionary and apostle. Now, the text implies that each of these five men had the gifts of prophecy and teaching each one of them possessed the same gift, they all were prophetslash teachers. They could all preach with the fire of a prophet and the detail and finesse of a teacher. That's extraordinary, and it proves that God will often give multiple gifts to His children to serve His purposes. Now, let's look at verses 2 to 3. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them, verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Luke tells us that during a moment of worship and seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to these five men, or to one of them. The Holy Spirit instructed, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, What work did the Spirit have for them? The answer is in uh, verses 3 and 5, I suppose, where it says the work was to basically leave Antioch and to go and proclaim the gospel in other places, to do missions work, the work of a missionary, to leave where they're at their base and to go out and proclaim the gospel. Now, there are six very important truths that spring forth in verses 2 to 3. Let's begin to examine them. Are you all tracking with me? You're okay? I know I'm moving fast, but i got to cover a lot of territory. And guess what? When we run out of time, we run out of time. we we'll pick up next week. You all with me? These are great truths that we find right here in the Word. Let's begin to examine them. Number one, the Holy Spirit spoke to the leaders during a time of worship and fasting. Verse 2 implies that the leaders, these guys, were already discussing ways to spread The gospel. Saul and Barnabas had been doing so for many years at this point, so it makes sense that they would hold these sort of discussions with the other leaders. The text shows us that they had all decided to seek the Lord for answers through prayer and fasting. During that time of prayer and fasting, during that time of seeking the Lord, that is the time when the Holy Spirit spoke to them. I would imagine while they were praying and fasting and And discussing amongst themselves. They probably said things like, Lord, we we want to spread the gospel. We want to send men out to proclaim the truth. Who do we send? What do we do? How do we do it? And then it says they intensified their efforts through fasting. Okay, you're praying these things. God, we want to send men out. We've got this new church in Antioch we planted, and we've got huge responsibility here, but we know that it doesn't end here. Matthew 28 says, We started here. Now we've got to move out from here. Who do we send out? And then what do they do? They intensified their pursuit of the Lord through fasting. That's what fasting is. It's an intense mode of prayer. An intense, more intense than just praying, a more intense mode of pursuing the Lord. They turned to fasting. They intensified their efforts through fasting. MacArthur wrote: believers can't become so concerned with spiritual issues that they lose the desire to eat, or they. Deliberately set aside food to concentrate on intense intercession. That's essentially what fasting is. It's taking it up a notch. It's going beyond prayer, adding fasting to prayer. I'm really pursuing you, God. I really want to hear from you. It is that setting aside of other things like food and drink to seek the Lord in a more intense manner. That's essentially what fasting is. The scriptures show us that people like Moses, Ezra, King David... And even Jesus himself fasted. In fact, Jesus prayed and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his ministry. He wasn't just up there. You know, he didn't, he like deliberately didn't pack a lunch. I'm sure he could have found things to eat. In the wilderness. In fact, the devil said, I can just, you know, you can just turn some of them rocks there into bread. He could have eaten while he was there. He deliberately prayed and deliberately pursued the Lord in a highly intense manner through fasting. He deliberately went without food. He didn't go without food because there wasn't food there. He's God. He could have snapped a couple of stones into a pita. No, he deliberately fasted. He deliberately fasted. As a matter of fact, he also prayed and fasted the entire night. Before he selected the twelve disciples. You ever read that in the gospels? You just come out and say. Hey Tom, Dick and Harry. Come on down. You guys are the next contestants on the uh, the gospel is right. No. He actually prayed and fasted all night. All night. He intensely sought the father. And then in the morning. He chose the twelve. Saul fasted for three days. Before receiving his ministry. Calling from Ananias. When he was blinded by the light, went into Damascus, and what did he do? He fasted. He did not touch food or water for three days. He was intensely seeking God. You could be searching for clarity or for direction from the Lord. Why not seek Him through intense prayer and fasting? He might provide you with the clarity and direction you need through that kind of worship. The scriptures show us that the Lord speaks to his people through intense prayer, through fasting. And verse 2 of our text proves that. How many times have you needed an answer to something? Have you needed direction? You've searched the word of God and come up short. Guess what? That's your finite mind that causes you to come up short because the word of God is fully sufficient. It's all there. We just have a hard time finding the answers there. How many times have you gone to someone, a a godly person, and sought wisdom from them, and they just could not give you the answer that you needed? I mean, it happens at times, right? Why not seek the Lord through a more intense manner of abstaining from something, maybe food, seeking him that way? Take a 24-hour period and say, God, I'm going to hold out. Please speak to me. Reiterate that over and over. You might get the answer you're looking for through that particular vehicle. God speaks to his people through that. That might be the way that you get the answer. Have you ever tried it? I love to eat, so the first thing that comes to mind is I'll just wait till some other way it comes. Well, why not be like Moses, Ezra, King David, and more particularly like the one we're being fashioned into the image of, Jesus, and fast. It's a great challenge to us all. You need an answer, you can't find it. Try that. Try that first. Maybe you get the answer and you put away with three weeks of struggle trying to figure it out. Second, very important truth the Holy Spirit is the one who appoints missionaries, right there in the text. We tend to think that it is the church's job to do that wrong. Middle of verse 2 shows us that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to appoint missionaries. Why? Because he is the one who gifts people with the necessary gift to do that kind of work. The purpose, you must know, of all missions work is to spread the gospel. That's it. It's that plain. That's the purpose of the church too. And those whom the Holy Spirit appoints uh, to missions work will have the ability to communicate the gospel effectively. They'll have the gifts to do that. Verse 2 shows us that the Holy Spirit selected. Really, in verse 2, we see this, that the Holy Spirit... Selected the church's best preachers, teachers, prophet teachers for the job. Who? Saul and Barnabas. These guys were the best of the church of Antioch. You ever read the epistles of Paul? You read the Pauline letters? The man could preach. The man could teach brilliantly. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts and appoints those, and in this particular instance appoints the very best that the church of Antioch Has to offer. Now, what made them the best? Was it their mere ability to preach and teach? Partially, partially, but they definitely possessed more than just talent in those things. The Holy Spirit can actually do something that no leader or group of leaders can do. The Holy Spirit can look upon the heart of a man to see what is truly there. Church leaders can only examine the exterior of a man. We can estimate what is in their heart by examining their works and words. But an exterior examination doesn't completely ensure that all is right on the inside. On the outside, the Pharisees were perfect. But on the inside, Jesus, who looks at the heart, said that they were filled with what? Old, dead bones. The Holy Spirit gave Saul and Barnabas the tools they needed but he also examined their hearts to see if they were qualified good for the job on the inside and on the inside Saul and Barnabas were found to be humble filled with godly and filled with godly character and integrity man those are key things those characteristics better accompany the person who goes out to do that kind of work Now, this is all why it's so important to seek the Holy Spirit for his selection when you're appointing an elder or a missionary or anyone else. And he sees the heart. He gives the gifts, but he also sees the heart. That's why you can bank on his selection. When he makes it clear that it's this person to do the job, you can bank on his selection. You cannot ever go wrong with God's choice ever. He gives the gifts, he checks the heart, and guess what? Only God is 100% accurate. Number three, mission's work is the very work of God. At the end of verse 2, the Holy Spirit told these guys that Saul and Barnabas were to engage in what? The work he had called them to do. Not the work the church had told them to do. The work that he had called them to. To do. Now, the Holy Spirit is God, which means that the work he calls someone to do is what? The work of God. The gospel is the work of God. God is a redeeming God who uses the church to proclaim and spread the gospel so he can do what? His redeeming work. Saul and Barnabas were called to do the very work of God by the very spirit of God. Now, what kind of, this is amazing, what kind of work, we've kind of touched on it, was Saul doing 10 years earlier, 10 or 11 years earlier? He was doing the work of the devil. He was trying to stop the gospel. He was persecuting Christians and harming the church. But then he had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. And now we see him as the chosen instrument of God to bring the gospel into Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia and beyond. That is amazing. Chosen instrument of Satan 10 years earlier. Go out and kill the Christians. And here we see him being appointed after being regenerated, saved, changed, transformed, appointed to do the very work of God. He had been doing the work of God before, but here it really becomes very official. The Holy Spirit makes it official. Pretty amazing. As I said earlier, Matthew 28:19 makes it so crystal clear that every Christian is to engage in the work of God. As a missionary, we are commanded to spread the gospel here and beyond. Number four, this will probably be the last one. Number four, it is the responsibility of the church and its leaders to support the Holy Spirit's selection. Again, it is the responsibility of the church and its leaders to support the Holy Spirit's selection. Look at the beginning of verse 3. How did these leaders, how did this church support the Holy Spirit's selection? After the Holy Spirit identified the missionaries, Saul and Barnabas, the leaders did what? They fasted some more. And then what does it say? They prayed. What does that mean? It says they, basically what it means is that they prayed for them. They prayed. After they got the selection, they're like, man, let's, let's fast some more, get some more clarity maybe on something, or just as an intense form of worship, let's also pray for these guys. What do you suppose they pray Luke doesn't tell us, but I think we can... Guess fairly accurately. We would probably pray the same over men who were chosen to do this. They probably prayed that God would use them, obviously. God, use these men. Take them and and use these men for your glory. Probably prayed, God, protect these men so that they can continue to proclaim the gospel. That they're not hindered. Don't let them be harmed. Don't let them be killed. Don't let them be jailed. Whatever. Protect them, Lord. They prayed, make their paths clear. God, that's something I would pray over somebody who's going out. Make the paths clear. Remove the the distractions. Remove the roadblocks, the speed bumps, the things that will slow them down. Make their paths clear. Give them clear direction. Make it known to them where they're to go. They definitely had to pray that God would provide for them. You know, when... Saul and Barnabas went out. They took just what they could carry with them. They basically traveled by foot. You know, they didn't have a bunch of Samsonite luggage with them. Samsonite, right? And went out there and had all these supplies. Had a caravan, you know. No, they didn't have any of that. They took a little bag with them and had a few things in it. A few supplies. God, provide for them. They're going to be out there in a hostile world, God. They're going to need food. They're going to need drink. They're going to need shelter. Provide for them, Lord. Lord. There's no doubt that they prayed, and this is what their heart goal as a church. They prayed Church of Antioch. God had to have prayed this. They prayed that many souls would come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Through what? Through how they proclaim the gospel. Man, they're going to be out there preaching the gospel. Save people, Lord. Save them as they preach. There's no doubt they prayed for that. And I would imagine they also prayed that God would bring them back at the appointed time. See, we don't see any of these details in the text. It doesn't say they were going to take off and go into these three Roman provinces for X amount of time or any of that. We don't have any of that. In fact, the Holy Spirit doesn't even tell them exactly where to go, if you notice. It doesn't say go into this area and this area. It just says send them out. They had to pray for these details. They had to pray that these things would be made clear. They had to pray. They didn't have a timeline on this. They didn't say we're going to go out for 30 days. We're going to go to Africa for 11 days. They didn't do any of that. They had to pray that God would... Bring them back at the appointed time. And I'll wrap up with five because it's shorter. And the next week, eh, maybe I'll just shoot through six and get them done. Then we'll move forward next week. I'm just so tempted just to keep going. I'm looking at the clock, but I'm never ending this early. Dang it, i got another hour. You guys are going to kill him, right? Never ended this early. Number five, it is the responsibility. It makes sense to wrap them up. It it is the responsibility of the church. Number five, important truth out here. It is the responsibility of the church and its leaders to affirm the Holy Spirit's selection. To affirm the Holy Spirit's selection. Look at the middle of three. How did the leaders affirm the Holy Spirit's selection? They did what? They laid hands on the Holy Spirit's selection on Saul and Barnabas. They put their hands on them. They prayed over them. There was no power giving during this laying on of hands. There was no anointing given during the laying on of these hands. Saul and Barnabas were already equipped. They'd done 10 years maybe of this kind of ministry already. They had the gifts. They had the talent. They had the ability. They had the desire. They didn't get anything passed on to them through these guys. The laying on of hands here was nothing more than an affirmation or an acknowledgement that they were God's choice. The church was saying, look... We are putting our hands on you. We recognize that you are God's choice. We're doing it in front of everyone. It was an affirmation. Do you remember when we affirmed our elders a while ago? That's all that was. I didn't give no miracle juice. Bruce will be able to preach. You know? I ain't got nothing to give except trouble. That's my wife. There was no anointing here or any of that. It was just an acknowledgement. It's brought him before the church. Man, we recognize these guys are the ones, man. And we're laying our hands on them. Go out and preach the gospel. Number six, lastly, it is a responsibility of the church and its leaders to send off the Holy Spirit's selection. To send them. Okay? Look at the end of three. What did these leaders do? It says they sent Saul and Barnabas off. They sent them off to Accomplish the mission the Holy Spirit had prepared for them, which was to what? Spread the gospel. Do you realize, just an ending thought before we go into communion, do you realize that every week that you come here and worship the Lord, you hear the Word of God taught, you hear it read, you're prayed over, and all this, with the express purpose of doing something in particular at the end of every service, and that is to send you off. Right? Into your missions field. Which is outside those doors down there. Every week. What is one of the purposes of the church? It is to train. And build up the saints for what? So they can have better families? No, but that's a bonus. So they can have better marriages? No, that's not the express purpose. It's a bonus. So they can have a better time at their jobs. So they can be more content. All that. All those things are great. No, the purpose one of the primary purposes of the church is to prepare the saints, to train them for the ministry of the gospel, to send them off each week. Right now, you are being edified, built up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the word of God, for the express primary purpose of being sent off. Not just El Roselle. Not just a Skippy's Wonder Burger. Does that even exist? Where do these things come from? I have no idea. I got a weird mind. that's, That's why you come, family. That's why you come, church. I don't care what church you go to. That's the purpose of the preaching of the word of God and the prayer and all the ministry to you. This is a ministry from the Lord Jesus Christ to you. For what purpose? To prepare you, to encourage you, to embolden you, to go out and to do the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church, the very glory of God. That's what it's about. Take what you learn. Take even what you've learned today. I know it seems shorter and all that. It's okay. (laughs) I feel like I need to get back up there and finish the sermon, but I'm going to do it. i will get back into it next week. But take what you've learned today and apply it. Everyone in this room, including me, has been challenged to invest what you have. You've been equipped now, even over the last 45 minutes, hour, to go out. More than that, through the whole service, the whole thing has been targeted towards equipping you. Let's put forth what the Lord has given us. Let's go out and be ministers of grace and of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation. Let's go out and love people. Let's go out and love our neighbors. Let's do it. Let's invest here at this church so we can expand, plant more churches that can do what we're doing now and bless more people, right? I don't know about you guys, but that just gets me so excited. Planting one church is cool. Planting a lot of churches, man, I don't know about you. Makes my flip-flops want to fly off right now. (laughs) Hit somebody. Let me pray for us as we enter into a time of communion, because guess what? Communion is a beautiful and significant time of equipping you as well. During communion, what do we do? We go over and we take those elements. We take that bread, and that's the best darn communion bread I've ever tasted. Good night. Throw a piece of salami on there. That is good. And we love you. Thank you for preparing that for us. We take that bread, which represents not Subway sandwiches. It represents the broken, shattered body of Jesus Christ. You want to get a good idea of what he went through, just watch The Passion of the Christ. Now, there's a lot of things in that movie I don't agree with. There's some weird stuff going on in there. It doesn't light up with my theology, Whatever. But boy, does it really give us an image of what he went through and how he suffered and how his body was broken, beaten beyond recognition. They couldn't even recognize it. Is that Jesus? I can't even tell. And then on that cross, as he was nailed to that cross, and that blood poured forth. He breathed his last breath. Every ounce of that, it took every drop of that blood to pay for your nasty sin debt, my nasty sin debt. Isn't that marvelous? Is paid for in full. Account is closed. So when we take communion, we are being equipped and, and, and being encouraged to remember what Jesus did. Ultimately, because of what he did, we have our freedom and liberty. We can live for him. We don't have to go out and earn our way with God or any of those things. There's no works. We're not living by the scales. It's all in Jesus. It's all done. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's why we do communion every week. What a marvelous thing he's given us. Why do you think he instituted it? I think so he could blow our minds every week, right? Here's what I did for you. Think about this. Ooh, that's so liberating. Let me pray for us. Father, may we enjoy this time of communion. Maybe it'd be a time where we would not only reflect upon your finished work, what those elements represent, your shattered, broken body for us and the spilling of your blood for the remission of our sin. We'd remember those things. That's That's quintessential. That is so important. We remember the new covenant. You've brought us into a new covenant of love and grace and mercy with you forever. Incredible. But we'd also remember some of these truths that we've heard. May we be compelled today to give ourselves to the cause of Christ. There's no greater thing to be a part of. You you can join this club and and you can do this and you can sail and you can join the military and, and you can be a weightlifter, you can do all these things, but none of them are as incredible as being a part of, invited into, made a part of the church, made a member of your family, made a soldier for you. That is incredible. May we recognize that today. May we be inspired and compelled by Holy Spirit to give ourselves fully to your work. <coughs> May we not have fear, anxiety, or worry about how you will provide if we give sacrificially. You provide. We can all testify to that. May we enjoy this time, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Help yourselves to the elements. Take them at your own leisure. We'll have a song and a benediction in just a moment. We'll get you out of here.